0: Well good morning and happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Hope you remember your dad this week. I've been reminding my kids every day that Sunday is Father's Day and we'll, uh, we'll just see what, what happens. Today we're going to turn our attention to the Gospel of John chapters 2 and 3. But before we get there, I just want to invite you in joining me in a moment of silence as you just kind of open our hearts and minds to receive all that God wants to say to us this morning. Amen. So we're in a series of messages called All is Grace, based on the Gospel of John. The theme comes from John chapter 1, verse 17. John is writing of Jesus, and he says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This morning we're going to take a look at three stories contained in chapters 2 and 3 that in many ways kind of reveal and unwrap the grace and truth of Jesus' life. The Gospels themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are filled with stories of ordinary people having encounters with Jesus. There are, I believe, important theological and spiritual implications in these stories. They're not stories just to be read, but they're stories to be experienced. So I don't want to to enter into these stories today just to be informed about something. My, my hope is that we can enter the experience of these events and be transformed into his likeness. Because the truth is, we as human beings remember experiences much more than we do information or data. Unless, of course, you have an eidetic memory, which most of us do not. So for instance, last week uh, on Tuesday, I took my my daughter to a freshman orientation at college. My baby's, you know, going to college this year. So we went to orientation, and uh, we drove up to Green Bay, and it was a day filled with like lots of information, lots of presentations, and I remember some of the information they gave us, but the truth is, just about everything they said was on the website, so I could get it all there. When I go to those kind of things, and this is probably just my own personal problem, but The question and answer times, they like drive me crazy. I wish they wouldn't do it, but they do it. I don't believe there's any such thing as like a stupid question, but like we got really close last week. Uh, So parents are asking questions, and I'm just, I just want to pull my hair out and say, the answer to the question is on the website. Just read it. I digress, and you don't care. But I, I, I tell you this. Because while I remember some of the information I received, what I do remember quite profoundly is how I felt. I walked around the campus, big beautiful trees, gorgeous landscaping buildings. I remember feeling a sense of peace. Like I was like, I felt good about this college choice. I walked down the street that contained all of the residence halls and I stood in front of the dorm that my daughter is going to move into. And I thought, in two months, I'm going to get all her stuff and put it in a room. And then I'm going to drive away. Like There was a feeling that was associated with that that I can can still feel right now. So my desire for the next few moments together is that we don't just read the stories of John chapter 2 and 3, but I I want to encourage you to enter into them with me. Because what they reveal... But they reveal in some pretty pretty important ways the power, the passion, and the plan of Jesus. All of which have pretty profound implications for our life of faith. So the first story is found in John chapter 2. This story speaks of Jesus' power. It's a story most of us are familiar with. Jesus is at a wedding, and he works a miracle by turning water into wine. So Jesus receives this invitation his mom uh, as well as disciples they all go to a wedding a wedding in those days was a big affair much more than today weddings in the days of jesus could last for days at a time they were grand affairs there was there was always an open bar and in this particular wedding the wine is starting to run out there's kind of a, a crisis that's happening. This would have been a, a huge deal. Now I had a, a graduation party a couple of weeks ago for my kid and, and I, I thought I got enough food, but obviously people came really hungry and so the kind of the food started to run out so I just ran over to the pig, got some more and crisis averted. But there's no, there's no piggly wiggly to run to, right? This was a huge deal because running out of anything, particularly the wine would have been a reflection on the character and integrity of the groom, of the host. For years, as he walked the dusty streets of Canaan, people would whisper and say, that's the guy that the wine ran out. What a loser. Maybe not quite like that, but just as harsh. So John chapter 2, verse 1, John writes, on the third day, A wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Like, I love this part. Like, I love this story. Because they run out of wine, and and. His mother, Jesus' mother says they're running out of wine. Jesus is like, that's not my problem. They should have, they should have prepared. Why do you involve me? My, my time has not yet come. And Jesus' mother completely ignores him. And she says to the servants, just do whatever he says. And like, I want to say, you know, he's God, right? But Mary, she's like, but I'm his mom. So, so do whatever he tells you. So they bring some jars that contain about 180 gallons of water or so. And Jesus turns this 180 gallons of H2O into the finest of wines. Now imagine you're at the party. You experience this event. Like, what are you feeling? What are you thinking? And what just happened? This man has the power to turn water into the finest that fermented grapes have to offer. He doesn't even speak. He doesn't pray a prayer. He doesn't whisper an incantation. He doesn't wave a magic wand. It just happens because he wills it to happen. I mean, this is no ordinary person. John then moves to a second story that reveals the passion Of Jesus. It's the story of Jesus clearing the temple. John chapter 2, verse 13, it's Passover, the most sacred of Jewish holidays. There are people from all over that have come to the temple to worship and offer sacrifice. And inside the temple, not out in the streets, but inside the temple, there are people selling. Animals, birds, and cattle needed for sacrifice. See, in, in Jesus' day, the, the form of worship was you would go to the temple, you would bring an animal that was kind of in alignment with the sin you were repenting of, and you were, would offer it as a sacrifice. But what do you do if you're from out of town and you, you don't bring an animal with you? Well, there are people in the temple selling them at inflated prices because they know that you need it. It's like being stuck in an airport, right? They, they got you. And so Jesus sees this exploitation. The church has been turned into a business, which is really easy to do. And they're in the sanctuary, and they're selling, and Jesus is really mad. John chapter 2, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So it's Passover. Jesus walks into the temple and he's a bit taken back by what he sees. His blood starts to boil. And what he's angry about, mostly, is the injustice that he's perceiving. Now, our theology teaches us that Jesus was both fully God but fully man, experiencing the full gamut of human emotion, and so he gets a little upset. You ever been upset? Like, really upset? Well, Jesus is so upset, in fact, he's looking around the temple, and he can no longer take it, and he sees the table with those guys that are exchanging money, he walks over to me, so many just... Shocking, right? I mean, if you were dozing, you're not anymore. I I mean, anytime you see anyone turn over a table, let alone multiple tables, and then he makes a whip out of cords and just starts whipping. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, let's imagine I came down the aisle and just started whipping folks. I mean, that that would start some rumors. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel would show up. Pastor Whip's Congregation. (laughs) Great headline, huge moneymaker. But it makes a statement. This is not the Jesus we're used to. We're used to the Jesus of love and kindness and grace and mercy, which he is all of those things. But there's also the Jesus who has a deep and pure passion for the things of the Father, for the things of holiness and righteousness, Faith has been turned into commerce. Religion has been turned into something superficial, something used as a mean of gain, and Jesus is not having it. These two stories are really important, the wine and the temple. They're important because these two stories get a lot of attention, just like today, people start talking. Did you hear about Jesus of Nazareth and what he did? He turned water into wine. No, I'm serious. I did not get that off Facebook. He actually, I saw it. He went into the temple and started turning tables and whipping folks and nobody did anything. There was a feeling associated with these two events and people were noticing. Important people. Powerful people. One of those people was a man named Nicodemus. Jesus spends some time with a man named Nicodemus and reveals his plan in so many ways. So John chapter 3, verse 1, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised by my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is everyone born of the spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, And we testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Nicodemus is a particularly important fellow. He is a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the most powerful of religious groups of the day. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin The Sanhedrin were 71 of the most important Pharisees. They were the most powerful of the powerful. He's also referred to as the teacher of Israel, a theological expert. So it is possible that Nicodemus is number one of the 71 of the most powerful of the most powerful. It is possible that Nicodemus is the most powerful religious figure of his day. This story opens with Nicodemus going to Jesus at night. Now there's a lot of theories as to why that is. I believe he went to Jesus at night because he was not quite ready to be associated with him. And so he went in in the dark so no one could see him. The repercussions would have been too great. He could have lost everything, his power, his status, his prestige. But he sneaks off because he's got to see the man behind the miracles the man that turns water into wine, the man that drives the money changers out of the temple. Could this nobody from Galilee be real? Could he be the the Messiah? I love this story because in many ways it's a story of all of us. He was a man who was curious, a little bit fearful, awestruck, hesitant, not ready to commit to Jesus, but not yet ready to push away either. So he says to Jesus, clearly you're a man from God. And then Jesus proceeds to answer a question that Nicodemus didn't even ask. John chapter 3, verse 3. If I can find my notes. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. What? He had never heard of such a thing. Born again, what does that even mean, Jesus? I mean, to us, this phrase means a lot of things to a lot of people. For some of us, it's a a stigma. For some, there's misinterpretation and baggage attached to it. For some, when we hear born again, we get this image in our head of an angry, Bible-thumping fundamentalist with drool running down their mouth as they, they scream words of judgment. Others of us get the image of a, Person preaching on a street corner and still some of us associate born again with going to a Billy Graham crusade and walking down the aisle. Nicodemus, however, had no idea what Jesus was talking about. Born again? How can I re-enter my mother's womb? That really is a disturbing picture, really. And all the moms are like, thank God he wasn't serious because, I mean... Nicodemus' mother was probably dead. So how? what do you mean be born again? Well, Jesus was actually speaking the same message as the Old Testament prophets, something Nicodemus would have recognized, but Jesus simply changed the metaphor. So, for instance, in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel promised Israel that one day God himself would act as a surgeon and remove their metaphorical dead heart of stone, and replace it with a living heart that beats and is alive, Ezekiel chapter 36. Jesus just changes the metaphor and moves the metaphor from the surgical suite to the delivery room. But the message is the same. Unless God does something supernatural in your life, we remain spiritually lifeless. The meaning of the metaphor is, is God is making all things new, whether it's a new heart or a new birth. Jesus is making all all things new regardless of our life regardless of where we've been what we've done who we are what we have accomplished how we've failed how we've missed it all things are becoming new the trouble is we often get this whole thing backwards we think this new birth is something that we do but that misses the miracle that Jesus speaks of because birth is not something we do Birth is something that happens to us. The reason that Jesus' words are so shocking is that like babies, we can do nothing to bring about birth. It's just—it's not even something that we can initiate. It's not some cooperative effort between us and God. It is completely his doing, a work of the Spirit. And yet all Nicodemus knows is the law, the rules, morality, the sacrifice needed to connect with God and appease him. It was all human effort, and he was an expert in human effort. And Jesus says, no, 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 Nicodemus, like a baby in the womb. You can do nothing to bring about this new birth. You can't even initiate it. So when Jesus said, you must be born again, he was talking about a work of God's spirit. Like I didn't, like with my birth, I didn't negotiate with my parents. All right, guys, come on, get going. I want to be born now. That's just not how it works my kids they put no effort into their birth like I was there for both of them there was someone in that room doing a lot of work and it was not them and I was really tired when it was over (laughs) thank you for laughing the last service I didn't think it was that funny (laughs) the metaphor is even more impactful in the days of Jesus because there were no hospitals there was no epidural there was no there wasn't even aspirin and mothers suffered during birth, and often they, they died. And so as Jesus uses this phrase, born again, it's not like some weird belief. It's more of a an awakening. Because Jesus even said in John 3, 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It is a, it is a sense of clarity, a sense that divine life has been planted in you, and you receive like a new sensibility. Because all living things have a sense. Like for me, I sense things. I see things differently now than I did 30 years ago. I see people differently. I see the world differently. I see creation differently. I even see bugs differently. Like 30 years ago, if I saw a bug, I'd just squish it. But now, if you're in my house, I'm like, that's God's creature. We need to try and get it out. So I try and scoot it out with a piece of paper. Unless, of course, there's a wasp nest, then they all die. But but beyond that, I mean, there's I see it different. When this divine life has been implanted in you, you begin to sense God's love more than knowing about it. It gives you a new identity. But Nicodemus, he's still confused. So Jesus, Jesus reaches back into familiar territory for Nicodemus, back to the Old Testament. John chapter 3, Nicodemus says, how can all this be? Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Verse 14, Jesus is referencing a story from the Old Testament book of Numbers. In this story, the nation of Israel has sinned against God. And as a result, God sends snakes and they start biting people, which like, I don't like snakes. Imagine you're Camping and hundreds of snakes just show up at your campground. They're just biting people and they're venomous and people are getting sick and people are dying and it's a terrible scene. And I don't got time for all the, how oh, could God do that? Well, just, that's a different sermon for a different day. But this is what's happening. And so then God gives this command to Moses I want you to fast and I want you to make a bronze snake and put it on a pole and hold it up and walk through the camp and whoever looks at the snake will be healed those that had the venom all they had to do was look and they would be healed this is the story this is the image that Jesus uses for repentance and being born again which to me seems a bit odd but it makes a little bit more sense when you consider the words of the prophets Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 45, look to me and you'll be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. What Jesus is essentially saying by using this story is, really, you want to be born again? Just look to me. It really is that simple. I mean, those in the story of the book of Numbers, if you've ever read it, they were so sick from the snake bites, they could hardly move. They certainly couldn't get up to touch the image of the snake. All they had to do was look at it. I believe the message is this. We make religion and faith so complicated. Because what we know as human beings is we know that we have to work hard, that we have to earn, that we have to appease, do it ourselves, have ambition. Some of us, Look to ourselves for our own religious satisfaction. Like, if I could just stop doing this, then God would like me. If I could just be a better person, if I could just give more of myself or do good things or go to church more, read the Bible more, if I work harder, then it'll all work out. And yet we keep falling short over... And I'm not talking about... I'm talking about those of us that have been following Christ a long, long time. We try so hard and we keep ending up in the same place, and it has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Jesus simply says, look to me. And the book of Romans tells us that if you confess with your mouth, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, or to use Jesus' name, you will be born again. What that phrase is simply saying is look to Jesus. You don't have to earn, you don't have to work for it. You don't have to become a better, just look to him and allow that supernatural grace of the Spirit to be in your life. Now something, something pretty incredible happened in Nicodemus because we don't, so Nicodemus isn't talked about in the Gospel of John to the very end. He's only mentioned twice. John chapter 3 and John chapter 19. John chapter 19, Jesus has been crucified. He's dead. And we read in verse 38 later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away, and he was accompanied by Nicodemus. There he is again. The man who earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds, and taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, but because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So, the guy who visited Jesus at night, who was afraid to risk anything, now takes his body during the day and risks everything. What happened? I think he just looked to Jesus, and everything changed. He looked to Jesus, and he had an experience. He experienced the man behind the miracles. I think there are some of us here, maybe myself included, that we just, we try so hard and we just keep coming up short. We just feel like we keep failing God, thinking we're never enough. We've made religion so complex that we can't even meet our own standards. But if we go back to John chapter 2 and John chapter 3, I think John Tells the story of the wine and the temple right before the story of Nicodemus because he was making a point. This man behind all this power, all you got to do is look to him. That's it. Look to him and let him do his divine work in you. For some of us, it's time to just put aside the impossible standards we set for ourselves. I mean, these guys, Joseph of Marathia, he was a disciple of Jesus secretly because he was afraid. And yet he's still written about and honored in the Gospels. So today, the invitation is very simple. Look to Jesus and let the Holy Spirit do his work of deep inner transformation. So God, I pray for all of us because all of us, we all try and we all f- fall short. and I mean, there are those of us that we've never looked to you. And so today, uh, the challenge of God is that we would just look to you, maybe for the very first time. For others of us, we've been serving you for 20, 30, 40 years and we have tried so hard and we never, just never seems to be good enough. Would you help us to really understand Grace. just as the Israelites looked at the image of the snake and were healed, may we look to you, O God. May we look to Jesus and find hope and restoration and healing and reconciliation to God. May we truly experience the joy of being born again. Amen.